Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Josh Bongard. I'm the Cyril uh, Vinod Professor of Computer Science here at the University of Vermont in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you first, when you first build a robot and what are you feeling at this time? Uh, when did I first build a robot? Yeah. I, uh, I first built a robot... Um, Uh, when I was 13, and mm. I got a, a robot as a Christmas gift, and I was very excited to receive this robot, and I built the robot, and the robot could barely do anything. Uh-huh. First, I was very surprised, and then I was frustrated, because I had also received that year my first personal computer, and this was back in the 1980s, and even back then, the very simple Commodore 64 uh, could do pretty much anything if you could figure out how to program it. So from an early age, I was surprised by how easy it was to get a computer to do something mm-hmm. and how difficult it was to get a robot to do something, mm-hmm. which more or less is still true today. And uh, trying to overcome the obstacles posed by robotics remains uh, my life's work. Uh-huh. Nice. So you really have been known with evolutionary robotics, but I would like to know how you came to robotics. Of course, there's many interesting thoughts uh, you have proposed many times that how you came to soft robotics how how you decided to be in soft robotics in in soft robotics yeah so i uh, did my phd with rolf pfeiffer at the university mm-hmm. of zurich uh, back in the early 2000s and at that time uh, professor pfeiffer was extremely interested in embodied cognition mm-hmm. and he and i went on to write a, a book on the subject And he was really focused on not just this issue of morphology or the body plan of robots, but also their material properties. Mm-hmm. So for Rolf, this was something that was perhaps as important, if not more important than three-dimensional shape. Mm-hmm. But back in the early 2000s, it was extremely difficult to build a robot made out of different material properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of interesting ideas uh, going on in the Pfeiffer lab uh, at that time about what we could achieve if we could make robots out of soft and hard materials, if you could create a robot that had a gradient of different kinds of materials throughout its body. Mm-hmm. But most of that work were sort of thought experiments and, and theoretical work at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, 10, 15 years later, we obviously are able to, to build robots out of very exotic materials. So it's an exciting time to be working in soft robotics because we can now try and instantiate or actually test some of those theories about why soft robots might be advantageous to rigid robots mm-hmm. uh, under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Great. So before going to your work in soft robotics, I would like to ask you how you would define soft robotics from your perspective and experience. Because there's different so, definitions, yeah. Absolutely. I think uh, I'm in agreement with a lot of my colleagues who work in this area that soft robotics is maybe an unfortunate name mm. for this branch of robotics uh-huh. because soft robots is to traditional robotics as nonlinear dynamics is to linear dynamics. Mm. The former field is somewhat a generalization and contains the latter field. 
So linear dynamics are, are sort of a, a specific case of nonlinear dynamics where the nonlinearities oh. are identity. They don't exist. In the same way, a, tr a traditional robot that's maybe made out of rigid parts, there may be a few small soft parts in there, but a, a soft robot is interesting because it's usually not just completely soft, but some interesting, um, uh, some interesting uh, amalgamation of soft and rigid uh, components. So for me, soft robots are not just robots that are 100% soft. Mm -hmm. Instead, uh, this term soft robotics forces us to think not just about the control policy of the robot, but also about the body itself. What is its shape? How might it exploit its softness to change shape? Mm -hmm. And what is the material properties of the robot itself? Yeah. So that, that would be my definition. Great. So now we would like to know what's actually work, recent work of robotics. So our audience. Sure. Um, we've got several projects ongoing in the lab. Um, one of the ones I think that's most relevant um, to uh, your audience is recent work that we reported uh, this past summer at the RSS conference, the Robotic Science and Systems mm -hmm. uh, Conference. Um, that was work by my PhD student, Sam Kriegman, and also uh, a collaboration with uh, our colleague, Rebecca Kramer-Botiglio at Yale. And in that paper, um, what we demonstrate what we demonstrated is that you could have a software, a soft robot that experiences deep insult. So by deep insult, we mean not just uh, some slight form of damage, but for example, losing half of its body mass. Perhaps the robot is cut in half. And what we demonstrated in that paper is that soft robots are uniquely suited to dealing with that kind of uh, deep insult. Hmm. What we found is if we allowed these dam deeply damaged robots to try and recover, um, they weren't able to recover so much by adapting their control policy, mm -hmm. but keeping their damaged shape constant. Instead, um, evolution was uh, better able to find a compensating shape for the robot. Mm. In some cases, the damaged robot would grow back the lost limbs and it could carry on moving with its pre-damaged control policy. Mm -hmm. even, even more interesting than regenerating uh, lost appendages, some of the robots would actually evolve completely new shapes that allowed them to keep moving with their pre-damaged control policy. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of interesting to us because again, it suggests yet another advantage of soft robots over traditional robotics, which is using shape change as a novel way of recovering from damage. Mm -hmm. That's a very fascinating point, and I think many questions here coming about mm -hmm. what kind be that application behind this uh, this approach. And before going to more uh, questions about, do you think that because you highlighted in your box about that the shape is important, and I would uh -huh. like to ask you whether what do you think about embedded intelligence or just morphological computation. Which direction do you think is worthwhile to go uh, in uh, in soft robotics research? Because I think this is really very interesting point. Right. So, so as I mentioned, sort of my definition of soft robotics is not the the target itself, the soft robot, but rather you know working with interesting materials forces the roboticist to really think about embodiment the shape mm. of the robot, the material properties. And by thinking differently about robotics, it takes you in new directions. So 
as in the experiment that I just described to you, mm-hmm. it's actually not the shape itself that's important. It's the fact that a soft robot can change shape. This is something that is difficult or impossible for a rigid robot to mm-hmm. do. In that most recent experiment, we showed that shape change allows the robot to deal with unexpected internal change, mm-hmm. which is severe damage. Yeah. We have some other ongoing work that shows shape change is equally useful for dealing with unexpected external change, mm-hmm. like, for example, coming upon a new environment, moving from flat ground onto a slope or, uh, or rough, uh, rough terrain. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the current shape that the robot uses to move over flat terrain, that shape is no longer appropriate for moving over rough mm-hmm. terrain. So depending on your definition of morphological computation, it's at least an, an, a, an additional kind of morphological intelligence where the machine is now challenged not just to think about how to adapt its control policy when it experiences internal or external change, it has a new option open to it, which is to also change shape or maybe even change material properties. There are new exotic materials that are coming online that may allow robot, soft robots of the future to dynamically stiffen and soften mm-hmm. uh, their bodies. This is a, a concept known as programmable stiffness. Mm-hmm. So given a situation that is a change or the jump is happening to soft robotics, uh, that you develop. How they can develop a new strategy of locomotion? It is just something in coming by um, autonomously. Is this kind of motion happening? I don't know if you really tested in a real robot yet, but this is really interesting. How they can develop a new locomotion based on the damage happening to the soft robot? Exactly. Yeah. So in the in this RSS paper from last summer, we demonstrated a hardware uh, prototype. And we're continuing to work on that hardware prototype with our colleagues uh, at Yale that that does indeed allow a physical soft robot to change shape. And given its new shape and its environment or its damaged state, Mm -hmm. there are new sets of control policies and new behaviors that are available to the robot in that in that shape or that uh, circumstance. And that's kind of a new way of thinking about, you know, training robots um, and opens up lots of interesting questions from an optimization and design point of view. Mm-hmm. For, for example, how do you go about designing a robot that can easily change shape or change, change into as many possible shapes as possible um, or find a shape which then quickly allows it to find a new control policy? Those are all potentialities of this robot, and you can imagine those in turn becoming objective functions against which you design a robot. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about intelligence soft robotics. How you would see the intelligence uh, in soft robotics in terms of the body or just uh, we have to invest more in coming up with brains for soft robotics? How you would see it in general, uh, intelligence? Sure. So um, as my advisor said, and and many have said before before us, intelligence is a notoriously difficult term to define. Mm. But for most people, they have an intuition about what it means. And a lot of people would would probably agree with the statement that intelligence is somehow about being able not to become trapped in the future uh, or to keep your options open in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an important hallmark of, of intelligence and, and different organisms realize uh, that in different ways. And one of the ways that humans make sure that they can keep their options open in the future and invade other ecological niches is not necessarily changing their body. That's mm-hmm. not something that's very easy for humans to do, but we do wear, uh, we do wear uh, scuba gear when we go underwater. Uh, we've designed spacesuits for exploring outer space. Um, we get it, we get inside a car. Um, we we wear gloves and operate tools. All of those you can think of as uh, what Andy Clark, the philosopher, called the extended phenotype. Mm-hmm. They change the sensor motor possibilities of the human wearer. Mm-hmm. And so I think that same intuition applies to soft robots. A, a robot that can change its shape has a broader range of sensor motor uh, dynamics that are available to it than a rigid robot that cannot change shape. And if you have more sensor motor possibilities available to you, if you have a search method running or a learning algorithm running to exploit that broader range of possibilities, you have a better chance of avoiding damage or death or or, uh, injury in, in future. You can avoid getting trapped uh, in in future situations. So I think in that sense, you can imagine a very clear connection between shape change mm-hmm. and intelligence. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you about what is the most misconception about the robotics? Something is misunderstood maybe in, in, in the research about the robotics. If there is any points you think is mi- mis- about misconceptions? Yeah, I think there there are some misconceptions about any new academic mm-hmm. discipline, and, and soft robotics is no exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ones that, that I've noticed is sort of this misconception that soft robotics is, uh, is just kind of about eye candy, making cool videos mm-hmm. where you have a robot that's made out of some exotic material, and it can twist and contort itself in some interesting way, yeah. um, which is all true, but it's not just a stunt that th- there is something very very fundamental um, about soft robotics that suggests such robots would be of increasing utility in the future. Mm-hmm. We may be able to make soft robotics more intelligent than rigid robots for the reasons I just described. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important in this new field of soft robotics that this, this notion of play, that we just try out different materials, um, try and put new new technologies together in new ways to just see what's possible, but to realize that that's not all that the field is about. The, the field is about using those new materials to force us to think differently and importantly to think more broadly about the nature of embodied intelligence. Oh, that's great. So I would like to ask you about what could be the questions that haven't been asked yet by in, in research. Do you think there's any questions that we didn't take in consideration yet? And the research of robotics in general. Well, I think um, you know they're related to soft robotics is the field of biohybrid robots. So these are oh. machines that are made up partly of artificial materials, but also biological materials. Hmm. Um, obviously, in nature, every single species is not completely rigid. Um, yeah. All organisms, for good reasons, are mixtures of hard and soft parts. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to make soft ro- robotics or we can make machines that are combinations of soft and rigid materials, it makes it even easier to integrate them with biological materials. 
And I think this is a, a huge untapped potential in both fields, which is how do we bring together the best of both worlds? How do mm -hmm. we combine artificial materials, many of which are stronger and more durable than biological materials? Mm -hmm. But how do we also exploit biological materials, uh, which are much better than our materials, at regrowing and dealing with damage, altering their, sh their form and function as the environment around them changes. Yeah. I think um, soft robotics and biohybrid robotics offers a great opportunity to bring together the best of um, human-made and biological materials. That's a good point. I would like to ask you about what do you think about smart material like electroactive polymers? Do you think using a smart material could be promising? Because we all are aware there is still limitation in, in terms of performance. So I don't know what you think, because some materials may be passive and we use techniques as you highlighted, morphological computation, or maybe we go to smart material. So which one yeah. do you think about it? Yeah, I think smart materials is all part of the, the same package here, which mm -hmm. is, you know, if, if we're thinking about useful machines, performance is not the only uh, the only feature we would like to see in these mm. useful machines. Uh, obviously it's important, but it's not the only one. Yeah. We, we've gotten pretty good in robotics about making specialists. We can make a robot that does one thing and does one thing well, and in a lot of cases it does it better than a human does. But we're not very good at making machines that are generalists, that can adapt what they do given changed circumstances or a different command from its human operator. Mm -hmm. But smart materials, like you mentioned, um, uh, programmable stiffness, um, biological materials, they're all very good at reconfiguring into new forms and therefore um, providing new function as the world around them changes. So I think the, the biggest potential for soft robotics is to be performant, um, maybe not optimal, but to do well for a, a given uh, circumstance, but also to be very pliable that the machine itself can mold itself into new forms and functions to perform new tasks. This has been an open problem in robotics about how to create generalized machines mm -hmm. um, since the very beginning. And I think soft robotics gives us a, a unique opportunity to address that challenge. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about simulation of soft robotics, because do you think that we reach a point that we have real, we have the same performance and reality given a simulation? Yeah, so sim to real that's an interesting topic. Um, I, I've worked on this for a number of years now. sim mm -hmm. to real is always challenging. Um, and there is a, a, an in intuition, and I would say perhaps even a misconception, that sim to real yeah. is even more challenging for soft robots than it is for rigid robots. Mm. But we have some work going on in the lab that shows that that is not necessarily the case. Mm. Depend If you can exploit the properties of soft materials in the right way, you can actually narrow the sim to real uh, gap. We don't have any work published on this yet, so mm. I, I probably won't say too much more about it. But again, soft robots causes us to think differently, in this case, to think differently about the sim uh, to real gap. Mm -hmm. So what are the challenges you're already facing now and in your, in your research, challenges you have? Some of the challenges. Uh, so, so some of the challenges have to do with um, actually constructing these robots. So in, in my group, we focus mostly on evolutionary optimization and simulation technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, and we collaborate with our, our colleagues at Yale and elsewhere um, where they, they have expertise in building physical soft uh, robots. 
But of course, manufacturing soft robots is particularly challenging because now there are also material science uh, questions that need to be tackled. Mm. So um, this makes things particularly challenging. How do we go about um, how do we go about evolving interesting robots and in simulation that are made up of complex um, combinations of exotic materials, mm -hmm. but ensure that those complex arrangements of uh, exotic materials can actually be realized in um, uh, in manufacture. Mm -hmm. So it's the sim to real challenge is actually not so much in and transferring the behavior, but mm -hmm. actually transferring the the design itself. Yeah. Can you actually manufacture the designs that evolution discovers in simulation? Mm -hmm. That's that's a big open open problem I yeah. think in, in this field. So uh, I I don't know if you, what you think about this. They speak in different language because I think you have been lucky to know many, many backgrounds. But do you think that in soft robotics now there's a challenge of speaking different language? Do you see any challenges in this regard? Uh, wh what do you mean by speaking different languages? From mechanical mean, engineering to material uh, science, electrical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, again, this is one of the challenges of doing interdisciplinary uh, work. Mm -hmm. and, but again, this is a challenge and an opportunity. Um, we, we spend a lot of time in my lab talking not just about how to collaborate, about how to transfer a given design to our mechanical engineering colleagues, but also how we can learn, to, as you say, how, how we can learn to speak the same language. Mm -hmm. um, I put a lot of emphasis in my group about having my students go and, and spend time in the labs of mechanical engineers and, and vice versa, and really emphasize this technology uh, transfer and expertise transfer by having students and postdocs uh, move from lab to lab. I think uh, th this is the way that, that science is going to play out in the 21st century, is that the really interesting questions lie at the intersection of very different fields. Mm -hmm. We have to think differently about how we educate uh, our students to be able to, to speak the same language, to be able to communicate with their peers from very different fields. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to know about what application you'll be interested in applying that, that what you developed already when you have soft robotics that can adapt shape given yeah, the damage. Yeah, I think a lot of the clinical applications are particularly interesting. Um, we're getting uh, better at, at creating, uh, We our lab and other labs are getting much better at creating very small and soft robots mm -hmm. that could be, could be swallowed and navigate um, the various passages in the human body. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned biohybrid robots, so if we can create micro soft biohybrid robots, uh, the human body is much less likely to reject those foreign bodies. Um, there's a lot of uh, microsurgical and uh, intelligent drug delivery applications. I think, uh, I think, and I think th those used to be science fiction, but it's becoming almost possible to do this with uh, with human uh, subjects. So mm -hmm. I think that is a, a likely um, domain for the killer app for soft robotics. Yeah. So do you think there's a challenges in the longer term, big challenges for soft robotics that you think? facing this to become into reality have this application from the yep. lab to reality I think the the big challenge again like any new field is the the hype cycle so oh. uh, soft robotics has been around for a few years now it's it's very exciting there's been some very high profile publications mm. in nature science and pnas about uh, soft robotics 
And there's the, the feeling in the field, you know, as usual, which is, well, now what? What can we do next? And I think every academic discipline and every technology goes through this, this cycle of intense interest and then a leveling off and a focus on the nuts and bolts challenges uh, of the field. So the, the funding agencies also follow those, those hype cycles. So mm. one of the challenges I think we're going to face is being able to communicate to our funding agencies and our industrial partners about why soft robotics is continues to be important and is is des, um, uh, worthy of uh, financial support. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about, about the brain. In your books that you mentioned that we don't have to, brain is not enough alone. So do you think that because there's current research about using uh, microfluid as a, as a controller and not relying anymore about more law about using microcontrol, do you think this kind of research worthwhile to go in soft robotics go on what are your thoughts yeah absolutely and, and you know it's, it's really interesting because we're going from microcontrollers towards microfluidics and other non-neural mm. you know signaling mechanisms for our soft robots which is the opposite of how nature did it We have a funded collaboration with uh, Mike Levin, who's the director of the Allen Discovery Institute at Tufts University. Mm -hmm. And Professor Levin's group focuses on regenerative biology mm -hmm. and specifically on um, bioelectric signaling in organisms. So the fact that organism, uh, cells within organisms speak to one another using lots of different communication channels, uh, in, including electricity. Um, and they've used that to coordinate behavior, or organisms have used that to coordinate very complex and intelligent behavior mm -hmm. long before neurons and synapses ever evolved. Uh, neural systems are one of the last discoveries of Mother Nature, yeah. and it's kind of interesting that in the history of AI and robotics, uh, neural networks were sort of the first invention, and now we're moving away from neural networks or at least thinking more broadly about other kinds of um, ways to imbue our machines with intelligence without having to rely on a massive neural network controller. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a limitation maybe for this technology in the long run, limitation for it? I, I think... Uh, My guess, and who knows where the technology will go, is that as usual, it will be all of the above. So organisms continue to, uh, the cells within organisms continue to communicate with one another in non-neural ways, even in organisms that have nervous systems. There are pros and cons to communicating information through a nervous system, and there are pros and cons to communicating uh, chemically and electrically, but non-neurally. Mm -hmm. Again, Mother Nature has found ways to combine those two, those two mechanisms together, or those complementary mechanisms. You can imagine uh, robots as well, where a neural network controller uh, made out of uh, electronics is useful for part of the robot's behavior, but there might be chemical or microfluidic other signaling systems within the same machine that support intelligent behavior under other circumstances. Mm -hmm. So what is, not, yeah, yeah. It would be overly simplistic to think that one signaling mechanism is just going to be better than the other, and that'll be the only one we use in future soft robots. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about integrating emotions with soft robotics, like color robots, soft robotics? Do you think this is something could be reliable to add emotions to robotic, or something is not important? I'm sorry, did you say emotions? emotions. Emotion, uh, emotional soft robotics. 
emotion in software models. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not really an expert in uh, affective computing and, and emotion. Um, I do know, obviously, that humans attribute emotion to other humans and animals based on, on facial expression and, and that sort of thing. So you can imagine soft robotics would be useful there. It might be much easier for a robot to signal an emotional state through changes in its body. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it could could be useful there, but that's not really my area oh, okay. of expertise. Okay. So could you please tell us more about your uh, ongoing project, incoming, uh, just project, interesting projects you are planning to work on? Yeah, so we, we've got some interesting projects that are coming, uh, coming up. One of them is uh, an integration between um, soft robotics and language. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you can imagine uh, you can imagine trying to tell a robot to do something and in its current shape it may not be able to perform that task um, so how does a robot change shape when it hears natural language from uh, a human a human uh, handler mm-hmm. so this is something that kind of goes beyond what you see in nature um, if you look at natural language processing in AI, it's usually non-embodied. It assumes that the natural language is parsed through a neural network. And uh, even when we have embodied approaches to natural language processing, like in human-robot interaction, it's usually a rigid robot that isn't really able to change shape in response to natural language commands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's kind of a, an interesting direction that I think is an interesting direction that uh, robotics hasn't tackled yet. A robot that assumes a different form when told to do something by a human handler. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, is there any project in soft robotics by other teams you think is interesting to you? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of interesting things going on. I mentioned already um, biohybrid robotics, and there's a lot of interesting work there. Mm-hmm. Um, the work on vine robots where you have a, a soft tube and that tube is able to elongate through eversion or extruding additional material that's hidden inside the soft tube. I think that's uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned already we collaborate with Rebecca Kramer Botiglio yeah. uh, at Yale. Um, I think her robot skins materials are extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. In that case, in her group, she's demonstrated that you can take a robot skin and wrap it around uh, a compliant but non-robotic passive material. And in effect, by by wrapping it in a robot skin, you roboticize that object. You turn it into a robot. I think uh, it's a it's a fascinating technology in and of itself. But even more exciting, it's a great demonstration of this idea of how thinking about soft robots takes our thinking about embodied cognition in completely different ways mm-hmm. and it takes it into areas that even mother nature hasn't really explored before mm-hmm. so now more futuristic questions about do you think that soft robotics can be have a singularity with singularity is this something do you think could happen <laughs> uh i am not a member of the singularity church um <laughs> The idea that any technology would grow exponentially, even AI, I think is uh, overly uh, simplistic. Yeah. Um, There are lots of arguments against that sort of exponential increase and improvement. Um, uh, So I don't don't think uh, soft robots will get us to the singularity any more than traditional robotics and AI uh, Mm -hmm. ever will. Mm -hmm. So 
Another question, how you see software politics in the future? That's just you can imagine how it would be in what kind what sorts you have. Sometimes if you think, oh, maybe after twenty years was this will happen, something you can imagine in your mind sometimes. Yeah, I, I think um uh, again, one of the things that I find fascinating about software robotics is the material science side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of colleagues um, working on very exotic materials. Um, Rob Shepard at yeah. uh, Cornell is doing amazing work with metal foams mm -hmm. and other kinds of exotic materials. Um, that I think that's just going to continue and completely transform robotics. We're going to be developing materials that we don't understand very well, let alone know how to combine them together into useful autonomous machines. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I hope, uh, obviously I'm biased, but I hope that that will finally uh, demonstrate the potential of evolutionary methods. Mm. Um, evolutionary search methods are particularly well suited in exploring very non-intuitive search spaces where we don't have a good idea of the constraints or even starting points for the search process. Mm -hmm. uh, it's extremely difficult to take a, a blob of exotic material and apply inverse and forward kinematics to derive an optimal control policy all of that, all of that infrastructure that's been developed in traditional robotics falls flat in the face of these uh, exotic soft robots, and we kind of have to start again. I think that's that's one of the most interesting directions mm -hmm. soft robotics can go uh, in the future. And another direction that I think is very interesting is the idea mm -hmm. of self-replicating machines, going all the way back to John von Neumann and the von Neumann machines, machines that can build copies of themselves. Mm -hmm. If you have machines that are basically a continuum of material, you can imagine as long as they can get their hands on more of that material, it may be easier for them to make a copy of themselves than it is for a robot made up of steel and plastic and raspberry pies to, to create a copy of itself. So I think um, this, this future dream of self-replicating machines might become a reality with, uh, oh. with soft robotics in the not too distant future. That's a great. So do you think there's kind of regulation that we have to come up with or ethics be considered in soft robotics so far? Yes, absolutely. Uh, obviously, robotics and AI is now grappling with the legal and the humanistic um, side uh, and the ethical side of our technologies. Um, we do some work in my lab on crowdsourcing as a way to um, create safe AI or safe robots. Mm -hmm. Look at the, the legal system. Um, technologies are, are, uh, are proved to be safe if whatever that technology does, when it performs an action, humans looking back on what the robot did or wh what the technology did, if most humans feel the tool did the best thing it could do under the circumstances, then that was a safe machine. If anything went wrong, it was the human operator's uh, fault. Mm -hmm. We're using crowdsourcing to do the same thing. So through websites, allow very large numbers of non-experts to collectively train uh, robots. And we find that robots trained in that way uh, versus training them by one grad student against an objective function that that grad student came up with. Mm -hmm. Those crowd-trained robots tend to be judged by the crowd to be more safe than a traditionally designed uh, robot. So we, we're working on applying this crowdsourcing idea to our, our soft robots as well. Mm -hmm. 
So I have a question, how we can make sure that soft robotics could be beneficial to human uh, in general, in our research? Yeah. The, the short answer is we cannot. Mm. In my belief, there is no way to, to proactively guarantee that a technology will not be abused. Yeah. What I feel, we as scientists and engineers, our responsibility is to try and understand that technology as best we can and demonstrate all the different ways that it could be, at, it could be used and also abused. Mm. It's then up to legislators uh, and industry and the general public to decide whether and how to deploy these technologies in different uh, domains. Mm -hmm. Great. So do you think that soft robotics find its room in industry? And now, given to the industry we have, do you think that it, it soft robotics can find uh, a room now in industry? Yeah, it uh, obviously is already uh, starting to. There are small uh, companies like Other Lab uh, in uh, California that are creating soft and inflatable uh, robotics. Um, NASA is very interested in the technology, mm -hmm. uh, creating infl inflatable space stations or inflatable robots in space and, and non-terrestrial environments. Uh, I think there's a lot of practical applications there. And as we already discussed, uh, the clinical domain. So there are a lot of industries that are looking at intelligent drug delivery. Um, some of those intelligent drug delivery methods are uh, robots, and some of those robots are soft robots. So I think the, the clinical domain in particular is where we're going to see a lot of the initial commercialization of soft robotics. Mm -hmm. So if your PhD student after graduation tells you he won't start or she won't start a startup, so what do you think the most uh, important criteria to have a successful company in soft robotics from your perspective? <laughs> well, I, I don't know because I haven't done that myself. But okay. uh, again, watching from the sidelines, um, if it's a soft robotics startup, I think, uh, again, a startup in the clinical domain is the right place to start. Mm -hmm. um, a starting team would probably be made up of a, of a computer scientist and uh, at least one material, uh, material scientist or materials engineer. I think if a, a, t a team of people that are experts in materials and people that are experts in computation, if they can get together and come up with an, a unique idea and find an industrial partner um, that has a, an idea about how to apply that technology in an interesting domain, there's definitely a lot of room out there for some successful startups in soft robotics. Mm -hmm. Great. So do you think that we have to come up with terminology to define the integration between machine learning and soft robotics? How do you see this integration is happening in, in nowadays between AI? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, again, soft robots means different things to different people, and machine learning means different things to different people. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, you know, machine learning, at least these days, implies means deep learning. So some sort of neural network uh, and finding enough data and getting Google to donate one or more data centers to train yeah. those networks, that's, you know, st that's state-of-the-art machine learning these days. There is a movement within machine learning towards uh, architecture search. So mm -hmm. even the, the machine learning insiders are realizing that uh, machine learning methods are greatly influenced by the cognitive architecture of the deep network and that it's harder to design those by hand. 
So there's sort of this second phase now in machine learning research where they're relaxing some of their assumptions about the, the architecture of the neural networks. And some within the field are now moving into what I see as phase three, which is realizing that at least in robotics, the deep, uh, the, uh, such as deep reinforcement learning, mm -hmm. that those deep networks are operating inside a robot body. And if that robot body changes, it changes the nature of sensor motor data mm -hmm. that's available for training the neural controller. And so there are questions, the, the machine learning researchers themselves are asking, how do we go about designing the robot itself to mm -hmm. facilitate deep reinforcement learning? Mm -hmm. That's where machine learning research comes into contact with robotics in general and soft robotics in particular. Wow, that's great. So do you think that soft robotics is gaining attention to the general public? It's really the aware how this technology could be interesting in, in coming years. Do you think that? I, I don't think so. Mm. Um, you know, the way that robotics usually comes into the public consciousness is through a viral video from, uh, from iRobot Corporation or Boston Dynamics. Yeah. Uh, uh, just yesterday, OpenAI demonstrated a, yeah. a, a robot, robot hand that could solve the Rubik's Cube, and there's yeah. already been uh, several million. What what you, what you suggesting about that? Because you mentioned that we we didn't have enough robots, enough like uh, only the Roomba and uh, coffee machines. So what do you comment about this uh, news? This survey we had. Yeah, well, I think again, it's it's something that when you see the video, it's immediately obvious to uh, to the general public that there's been some advance here. It's something yeah. they've never seen before. It doesn't require a lot of technical explanation. Mm. Uh, and again, there's been a lot of viral videos around soft robotics as well. But I don't know if the the public, you know, recognizes this distinction between traditional robotics and soft robotics as much as those who work in the field do. Mm. I think that distinction is much more important and exciting to, to those who work in the field than the, the general public. Mm -hmm. So do you think there is a solution or commitment we have to do in this regard? I, I'm sorry, could you say that again? A commitment for that. Do you think that we have to do something to push forward the awareness about the robotics for Public. Yeah, I think it's very difficult from the top down to plan to capture the public imagination. It's something that usually happens bottom up. Mm -hmm. um, someone in the field introduces a completely new kind of soft robot, like uh, Rebecca's robot skins or the, the Vine robot. And that video is released on the net and collects a lot of views. I think that's the way that we, we capture the public imagination. Uh-huh, great. Um, I think I mentioned the clin clinical domain. If soft robotics become useful for actually helping uh, with medical conditions that are difficult or impossible to tackle with uh, human surgeons or traditional robot surgeons, that will be something that the general public can understand. If they mm. can swallow a pill and understand intuitively that that pill is a robot, that is operating inside their body, they will have a much more, a deeper appreciation for for this particular kind of technology. Mm -hmm. Great. So now more philosophic questions. Do you think ego is important for a researcher to be successful? <laughs> ego, that's, yeah. a, that's a good one. Um, I don't think ego is necessary. Mm -hmm. What I think is necessary is unflagging optimism. 
So you've probably had the experience as a researcher, as we all have, of you have some great idea and you try one, two, ten different ways of realizing that idea and none of the, those experiments pan out. Mm-hmm. Successful researchers are able to still be optimistic even after the 10th failure and oh. try an 11th or a 100th or a 1,000th uh, attempt. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, unflagging optimism often is transmuted into optimism about themselves, which becomes egotism. Mm. Uh, so I, I think so. it's important to distinguish between optimism and, and egotism. It's important as a, as a young scientist or as any scientist to be optimistic yeah. and believe that whatever challenge you're trying to address, either you or your student or your student's student may someday crack the problem that's that's important but being egotistical and thinking you're the only person to solve the problem that's in my experience not that helpful in Mm. uh, in science or engineering that's a good point so i would like to ask you whether you have designed a robot and and built it in every day and ended up to be in your home you have any robots in your home that you already designed (laughs) i have uh We've started to build some soft robots, uh, Mm. and we make them out of um, soft, uh, hollow voxels. Yeah. I've got a couple of them sitting on my desk here, so they're not quite at home, Mm -hmm. and they're not the most functional robots, but they are are very nice to grab and squeeze, so they're useful as a stress relief toy at the moment. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I'm I'm not sure. (laughs) So, at the Beatrice Supervisor, What are the main qualities or you're looking for a student? Is it the skills or the trait? How you would look for a student to join? So as, as I mentioned, one of the things I look for is relentless optimism. So mm. when, I, when I interview a, an applying student, I ask them to tell me about a project they've worked on in the past. And what I'm looking to hear is, I tried this, that it didn't work. I tried that, that didn't work. I tried three more things, they didn't work. But on the sixth or the seventh or the 11th try, I finally got it to work. That's that's really what I'm looking for in a student. Um, I'm obviously looking for a, some level of expertise. Most of the students that join my lab are pretty good coders. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I assume that if they're if they're relentlessly optimistic and curious, they're going to be able to teach themselves whatever else they need to know to operate in mm-hmm. in my lab. So so that that's really what I'm looking for is kind of a personality type rather than a particular set of skills. Uh-huh. Great. So lastly, if there is a advice was given to you as a researcher and was like a life changing for you, and you would like to share with the audience? Oh boy, that's a good question. Yeah, obviously throughout my own career, I've, I've received lots of, uh, lots of advice. I think the, the best one is, uh, is a quote, and I'm blanking on the, on the author of the quote, but it's, uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. Hmm. So there is a tendency among academics or very bright people to be very detail-oriented and not to allow anything out of their hands until it's perfect. And uh, I've known a lot of uh, fellow students and colleagues along the way um, that fell by the wayside because they got caught up in some particular project and never managed to to publish it or communicate communicate it well to their peers. I think Mm. it's important to be to be relentlessly optimistic, to keep working at problems. And even if you only come up with a partial solution to at least publish, publish it and communicate it to your peers, 
knowing that they're going to have plenty of ideas about how you could improve that, mm. that solution. I think that's the, that's, that would be the advice that I would most pass along, which is to avoid perfectionism and instead focus on relentless optimism and generating interesting and novel partial solutions to really hard problems. That's a great advice. So I would like to ask you if there's any final words you would like to forward to Soft Robotics community. Final words. I think, uh, and this has probably been, been mentioned by others on your, on your podcast here, but it's an extremely exciting time to be in soft robotics. There mm -hmm. are so many amazing new technologies that are, um, that are meeting at the interface of soft robotics. Um, 3D printing continues to leap ahead. Uh, material science, uh, you mentioned microfluidics. Mm -hmm. um, soft body simulation is becoming easier and easier. Mm. Um, uh, integration with biological materials is, is now becoming easier and easier. I think uh, if for those that are interested in robotics and AI, you never know, but I think most of the interesting problems in neural networks have been solved. There are many, many more open problems that can be solved by bringing together new emerging technologies in soft robotics, and that that is likely to pave the way to, to new advances in robotics and AI. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's, uh, thanks so much for this interesting discussion, and, and while of IEEE rest, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Marwan. Nice, nice chatting with you today. Thank you. Uh